five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. This is our last interview of the year before we start our annual three-week winter series podcast where we feature lectures or news events from other creators. We'll be back with a new interview on January 14th. Okay, my guest this week is Chad English, who is an industrial technology advisor for the Industrial Research Assistance Program at the National Research Council. I ran into Chad at the recent Canadian Space Summit, where he was a speaker in the I Have 50 Megabits Per Second Now What session. That session focused on the coming broadband internet to rural and remote locations via low-Earth orbit satellite constellations like the one Canada's Telesat is trying to build. Other companies looking to, to this marketplace include OneWeb, SpaceX, and others. Listen in. Welcome, Chad, to the SpaceQ podcast. Thank you. To get my audience familiar with what you do at the National Research Council, can you briefly des- describe what an industrial technology advisor does and how companies can use the Industrial Research Assistance Program to their benefit? Yes. Uh, so a national technology advisor is part of the NRC's uh, industrial Research Assistance Program. It's a different division than the research centers that most people would be familiar with for uh, for NRC. Uh, now, as an advisor, we don't do research ourselves, but generally speaking, we all have experience uh, doing technical research. Uh, to be an industrial technology advisor, you have to have had a career that involved being a specialist, a technical speci- specialist in some area, uh, I'm I'm a PhD in aerospace uh, and mechanical engineering, for example, and you had to have run a, a company at some point, either as an entrepreneur or as a senior uh, manager. And I was the director of research and development at Neptech Design Group, a space company here in Ottawa. Now, the uh, the industrial technology advisor ITA, as we call them, uh, our job is both to advise companies, so we take our own expertise, both in business and in technology, and we can directly advise companies where they can use help. Uh, generally speaking, we are looking at companies that are uh, looking to grow. They have to be small and medium enterprise, which means 500 or fewer people. And um, when appropriate uh, and available, we also have funds that we can draw on and do uh, projects where we can help fund the project for the company. Now, I would say we're not a funding agency in the same way people think of funding agencies. You don't uh, apply to IRAP for funds. You get an invitation from your ITA because you've worked out a, a plan of which the funding is part of their growth opportunity. You can think of us more as like a VC or angel investors, except for our funds come from the taxpayer. And so you wouldn't apply to them per se. You pitch to them and, and they use their discretion in choosing who to work with and who to uh, put funds into. And we do the same. It's a discretionary program. Uh, and we, we invest our time and, when available, funds uh, where we think is the biggest payoff. For us, uh, payoff is, it's not equity, it's not debt, they don't know it back. The funds are invested for the 
growth of the company. It's what we call benefits to Canada. So increasing revenues, exports, jobs, uh, things that bring uh, money into the country and grow the economy within the country, which of course spins into you know taxation that pays for the program many times over. So that's basically what we do. There's 255 of us, I think, across the country. And that's the, the, the front end of our program. All right. I think that gives the audience a, a good introduction uh, as to the work you do. And obviously, you've been in the business for a long time. Now, the last time I saw you was at the Canadian Space Summit last month, where you gave a presentation in the I Have 50 Megabits Per Second Now What session, which dealt with high-speed bandwidth, which will become ubiquitous, in theory, in remote and rural communities via low-Earth orbit satellite communications constellations in the next few years as they come into service. Now, when you started to speak, my ears picked up as you were talking about some of the companies you've been working with in rural areas. You talked about your difficulty in getting a mobile signal in places as you were visiting some of these companies. You also mentioned how difficult it was for some of these companies to attract attract people uh, to these more remote communities. You tend you then tied their need with the topic and what LEO satellite communications constellations will mean for them. So let's talk about that need and the coming capability. In your experience, what do you think LEO satellite communication constellations will mean to some of the companies you've talked to? That's a great question, Mark. Uh, and, and the answer ultimately is, well, I don't know exactly because uh, these things are kind of multiplicative in some sense. Uh, the ability to track talent, for instance, a lot of that might be what connectivity they have as, a, as an employee as, you know, when they're at home in the area. Uh, can have an effect on their willingness to come to an area or the businesses that are around there, which is, you know, all of those things are multiplicative. If we stick specifically to the individual needs of the company, of course, communications is going to be one of them. Um, the, uh, the ability to, uh, you know, to have a, a presence, uh, whether it's internet or their emails or their telephone calls, a lot of them uh, in the rural areas, if they don't have good uh, phone connectivity, uh, one of the clients that I was visiting that you're referring to was well off the beaten path, um, you know, back in dirt roads, let's say, and uh, they, they're actually have to use satellite phones. So that uh, that is one area that certainly there's a need. Um, another area, of course, is that if you're a company that is involved in, let's say, the digital economy in, in data processing, uh, obviously you need to have good connectivity. Now, the, the companies that I was specifically visiting that I was talking about were not data companies because they don't have, I don't think they have that kind of connectivity yet in, in a lot of these rural areas. These were specifically ones that build physical hardware or testing or things like that. Um, and they do, of course, do have difficulty in attracting people to those areas unless they're already from the area. Um, but they didn't actually necessarily need it for their business though, as long as they had good phone connectivity and email and, and, and that sort of a processing. But even for those companies, things like moving to the cloud, everything's done in the cloud these days. You see it more and more. And that's 
that's a let's say a business value. It can reduce prices. You can do more with less uh, by moving things to the cloud. Even your infrastructure, your company infrastructure, and uh, it's a disadvantage to rural and remote uh, businesses that they can't access those things the same way that we do even today. Even if they're a viable business today. It doesn't rely on connectivity. Everybody else is, and, and that gives them an advantage. So those are areas that I see immediately where, where uh, existing companies could certainly benefit from connectivity. Now, going back to some of the companies you went to visit, uh, from what I understand, one of them was working with unmanned aerial systems uh, and beyond visual line of sight in, in that area. How does that tie into what LEO Satellite constellations will provide and are there any other examples that you can cite right yes and so this is actually it's interesting because this is primarily where i've been been thinking about this problem of, of connectivity um some of the things of rural and remote connectivity are, are pretty straightforward and obvious you get people who can of course things like netflix and they can do e-learning and um, emails and, and any of the sort of the modern you know, social uh, networks and things like that, that that everyone has access to personally. Um, but I'm thinking uh, even a couple of steps beyond that um, in terms of the, in terms of the, the the clients that I see. So the, the one that I was thinking of uh, in that discussion in that talk was a company that does. Uh, UAVs, as you mentioned, but they, they're long-range UAVs for cargo delivery is uh, the target. So they were, they're doing, a, let's say, 500 pounds, 20,000 kilometers. Now you can start to see where the, the instead of digital businesses, you know, image processing and things like that, of course, come from connectivity. But physical uh limitations still keep things like airplanes and transport trucks from rural areas and in remote areas and up north and things like that are, are still a problem. Uh, a company like this who can fly their UAVs and deliver um, goods and uh, to remote areas cheaply uh, now brings down the cost of things like uh, they would use an example of, say, peanut butter is fifty dollars in, uh, you know, in a in a store in a, in a Kalawit or something like that. Um, and if you can bring that price down to five dollars, you know, now they're starting to experience cost of living similar to ours. And that, of course, makes it even more attractive to live there uh, in the remote and rural areas. Um, the reason that connectivity has an effect on it is because things like beyond visual line of sight, uh, UAVs, first of all, you can't do that commercially in Canada or most, many countries right now. It's not legal. Um, part of allowing that is going to include things like connectivity. Uh, from, from the satellite side of things, um, of course, you get things like the navigation side. You get the GPS that's already there. You'll get things like uh, for air, aircraft, it's uh, ADSB, um, and that's uh, uh, I'm forgetting what it actually stands for, but that's the transponder signal that tells airplanes where each other are located. So UAVs that are flying through uh, airspaces are going to be producing these signals, but also they need to be able to detect and avoid other aircraft in their airspace. And if it's an unmanned aerial air, a vehicle, 
uh, you're going to need things like ADS-B transponders. You'll need sensors that can process uh, the imagery. You'll need them to decide what to do when things go uh, off plan or they, they lose their, their control system. They, I mean, their, their, their ground system. So do they decide to land? Do they return home? Do they continue along the flight plan and try to reconnect? Um, or even just processing their imagery. How much of it is local autonomy versus um, versus controlled again through through the cloud, through connectivity, uh, in order to uh, allow them to make these long distance flights. Uh, what's developing now is a national uh, unmanned traffic management system, or as, as we're calling it in Canada, an uh, RTM, which is an RPAS, uh, remotely piloted uh, aerial system. Uh, traffic management system. And so that's what's going to allow these sorts of long-range UAVs that can deliver cargo in comparable prices to something that we get from transport trucks in urban areas all the time. This is very interesting, actually, that you mentioned that uh, some of the technologies that are used for this, like, for instance, you mentioned the ADSB. Um, those sensors... Uh, and I'm assuming the ones you're talking about now are part of the Arion, uh, at least in Canada, uh, Arion uh, service offering. Uh, and those sensors were launched on the new Iridium satellites in the last couple of years. And they're just all coming. They all just went came online earlier this year. And so yeah. you're telling me now because of these sensors... Uh, these uh, autonomous uh, drones, if you will, that are going to take cargo from point A to point B, um, their whole path is now going to be tracked through this ADSB system, correct? Well, something along those lines. I, I, I can't map out exactly what it's going to look like. I don't know exactly, and uh, oh. Transport Canada will have generally more say about that. But it's something like that. that right. They will be themselves... Uh, um, broadcasting their location at all times and air traffic management can track where the UAV itself is. True. But right, that yeah. UAV also needs to know where other aircraft is and avoid them so that it keeps uh, minimum distances and things like that. Uh, now, which brings, yeah, go sorry. ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, it brings up another point that I didn't bring up at the top, which is another set of technologies that will allow something like that. And this is the remote airport where the FAA has a program right now where they are, um, I believe there are four or five large firms who are testing systems to get certification for the FAA's effort in the States for allowing remotely operated airports. This is essentially uh, a remote tower uh, because you can't, you're talking about a few flights per day. Usually you don't have towers in small and rural airports. Um, but with the, with the advent of uh, these remote towers, think 360-degree cameras, maybe you have radar system, maybe you have LiDAR or something like that that keep track, keeps track of the, the airplanes. But the data might be processed in, say, downtown Toronto or, or you know, monitored from downtown Ottawa or something like that. And the airport could be, in, you know, up north somewhere. And so these are, again, you're getting live streaming uh, HD video, uh, multiple cameras, maybe integrated, uh, tracking things and, and doing uh, essentially the remote airport, uh, remote tower activities. And I think I have 
three or four clients working in this space, just myself. Um, and and there's, there's, there's a lot more uh, internationally working in these areas. And once, sorry, once you, once you allow these remote airports to start opening up, that means larger aircraft can start to land at these things and more often. And so now, again, you've increased the economic activity in rural and remote communities, which makes them more attractive. You can ship more goods uh, more cheaply and travel more often. Uh, medical uh, travel as well, if you need to get to major centers. So the whole bunch of things that can open up just by having this additional connectivity and with physical mobility as well. So uh, as anybody who's traveled into remote communities, and in particular uh, anywhere in the Arctic, they'll know how expensive it is to ship goods uh, to those areas. So um, uh, not thinking about the Arctic in in particular, but thinking, let's say, more shorter term, um, and you're based in Ontario. uh, Let's talk about Ontario for just one second before we move on to to other topics. But um, I'm just curious. So if um, when it comes to logistics side of this of this chain, if you will, um, are we going to see, let's say, um, because we know that you know places like Amazon, which you know, which position goods near airports, and then from there they then get trucked out to different waypoints and then delivered from there. So are we going to see something where, let's say, outside of Ottawa, outside near the Ottawa airport, you're going to have a logistics center that's going to have, um, a let's say, a drone base, and then from there it goes on a very specific route to wherever in further north or east or west in Ontario? Uh, or are we going to see something initially where, let's say, it still gets trucked from, let's say, Ottawa to... I don't know, North Bay, and then from North Bay, it then gets distributed via uh, these drones. How do you see that working? Hmm. Uh, well, the one thing I can predict is that, that my predictions won't come true because uh, uh, generally speaking, <laughs> we're, lousy at predict- we're lousy at predicting what, what's going to happen when, once these sorts of things open up. Um, but the trend and the discussions um, all tend to be pointing in certain directions. Everybody seems to be familiar with the last mile drone delivery. You know, this is the, the Amazon or the UPS, or, you know, or, or other courier type uh, delivery or pizzas for that matter. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're delivered the last few miles, a few kilometers in Canada. Um, delivered to your house, put on your lawn, things like that, um, and the, the, the economics behind all that. Um, that's going to be that. That's not the low-hanging fruit. Getting getting flying drones delivering that's a hard problem, and flying over people in, in urban areas and it, that's going to take a long time to get approval. These longer range over over wilderness should be a lot easier in principle. Um, and can be done today without technological difficulties. So I see things moving that way. There are actual, um, I believe, twice a year there's a, a an unmanned cargo, an unmanned cargo systems conference, or unmanned airborne cargo systems conference. Um, so there are like there are conferences just on the topic you just described, which which uh, you know is all about drones. And I'm talking. I'm not talking about the little quadcopters. We're talking about 
everything from uh, you know ultralight size up to even you know 737 size. You know FedEx is probably going to have a completely unmanned aircraft flying around the world delivering stuff. Uh, if you don't need pilots, you, know, you land and you fill up and take off. That's probably going to happen too, I imagine. Um, but specific to your question, I don't see why not. Um, if you have a, a uh, whether it's whether it's something out of an Amazon um, or similar uh, facility that that has to you know do the hub and spoke outwards, smaller and smaller drones maybe, uh, or it's just something like uh, airport to airport. Um, or, and then trucked, or again, maybe a smaller drone system or something like that. Certainly, to rural and remote communities, I would think that that's something that that would happen. All right, all right. So let's get back to uh, Leo and connectivity. Um, mm. Connectivity issues for remote and rural communities is actually not new. Uh, there are already uh, a few solutions in place, albeit they're expensive and in most cases not high speed. Uh, an example of, of a recent improved broadband connectivity is the Mackenzie Valley Fiber Link that saw the construction of a 1,154 kilometer fiber optic cable between high level Alberta and Inuvik Northwest Territories. Now, that Connectivity provided seven communities and businesses within that communities with high-speed connectivity. Although it hasn't provided ubiquitous connectivity across the Northwest Territories or Northern Alberta, like Leo Satellite Communications constellations will do. The fiber uh, optic line that was built over that distance took several years and cost $82 million dollars. Now, we don't know yet what the price point will be for any type of LEO satellite communication constellation services, uh, but do you think projects like the Mackenzie Valley Fiber Link, which lay cables over long distances and which are very hard to service, are they going to get funded in the future or not? Or will LEO satellites get the bulk of the funding? And also, you know... Uh, should we be investing more in fiber links uh, in these hard-to-reach re regions? <laughs> well, um, I'll refer back to my earlier statement that, uh, you know, the only thing I'll predict is that my predictions won't come true. So um, the this is a great question. Uh, it's going to come out in the economics one way or another. Um my guess is, is is that, and this is a guess, uh, that you will certainly get value out of something like that. The fiber links, of course, is going to be probably faster uh, and connect more people uh, in a more, I'll say, a more reliable way, although physical links are often prone to damage that uh, a satellite link would not, um, but maybe less complex. Uh, that's certainly going to happen, and certainly major centers I could see being connected that way. Of course, the further, the longer you go, the the, the bigger the problems with just running fiber optics themselves. The the, the communication speeds uh, take a hit, and you require repeaters and things like that, uh, which gets more and more expensive. Um, and of course, the cost. Uh, and, and servicing of those things uh, is very expensive. Whereas 
you know, the economics of satellites, although they cost a lot to launch, you know, once you know, that's all, I'd say that's all front end cost. Um, once you're up and running and you kind of have a replacement cycle for your satellites, they're, you know, that, that, that's already factored in. Um, it's, you know, it could be, it could be a lot cheaper. Uh, it could be more expensive depending on how, you know, how remote we're talking. Um, it could, um, Prices could be driven down by competition in probably more so in the satellite side. There's certainly a lot of satellites planned, uh, but there's also different mo- business models from the satellites. And that's something that, it, you know, I haven't heard talked about a lot, but some of them are, let's say, direct to end user and other ones are intended to be, let's call it, uh, uh, you know, similar model as the, the data links, the fiber links. Um, that the satellites are intended to downlink to a, a main center, maybe in, in, in town or something like that, and then distributed, sold to distributors. You know, so you have your local, let's say, cable distributor or another maybe uh, over, you know, over the air, you know, microwave link or some other, some other, uh, you know, wireless link to the community, you know, something along those lines, or wired. Uh, I don't know which business model is going to work out. Um, some of them look very expensive. Some of them look relatively cheap. Um, all I can say is the, the longer the distance, probably the cheaper the satellite will be in, in comparison. Right. And we, we, we should also mention that these LEO satellite constellations are also going to be used by the military, uh, including uh, Telesat's uh, proposed LEO uh, satellite constellation in Canada of several hundred satellites. Um so the one point that I wanted to throw in there is uh, looking at the costs, the cost of laying uh, the fiber uh, and mm-hmm. the cost of launching a satellite and replacing a satellite if the satellite uh, goes offline. So one of the things about these LEO constellations, which it does actually have in its favor, is that there's a lot of satellites and there's going to be spares on orbit to move into a spot should a satellite malfunction or come to the end of its uh, service time. Um, but what's really interesting about this is that when you look at the costs, is that um, what the actual cost is to put up each of these satellites for LEOs. Uh, I'm very, very specific here on low Earth orbit LEO. Um, you know, in the past when we talked about uh, geostationary satellite um that were being launched. I mean, these are large satellites, like very big. You know, things sometimes even some of those military ones going back in in time, the size of a small school bus, right? And now we're talking about satellites that are under a thousand kilograms. A lot of them in the two hundred and fifty to five hundred kilogram range. And then you look at a company like SpaceX, and this is where I think people have sort of understood, but really haven't paid too much attention to, is that. They're launching 60 of their own LEO satellites on one rocket. When you start doing the math on the economic side of it as to how much it costs per satellite for them, the, you know, the price is really going down. All right. So uh, one of the other things that, you know, we've talked about some very specific examples. We've talked about some of the, you know, the communication challenges, some of the things that are going to happen. But... Uh, let's take a look at this from an even bigger perspective. When you, when you look at the map of Canada and you see our population, it's very concentrated. Most of it is in the low latitudes and close to the U.S. border. 
Are we going to see a shift in where people decide to live and work? Uh, because, or sorry, are we going to see a shift uh, in where people decide to live and work because we now have high-speed bandwidth as a result of Leo Satellite Communications uh, constellations? That's a good question. Um, the reason, I guess, that people uh, you know choose to live where they do are probably many factors of which you know connectivity m- you know, may be a small part. Uh, but uh, I'll allude back to my earlier comment that these things can be multiplicative by having remote airports, or remote cargo, uh, connectivity. Uh, you can actually turn a, a potentially turn a, a village or a small town uh, into a, a growing uh, space. It becomes bigger and bigger, and then you know becomes more of a more of a more urban center on its own. Um, so people might move there because of the, the economic value. And of course, real estate prices being what they, they are would tend to be a lot lower in more rural and, and remote areas. So uh, that could be more attractive just on its own because it's a growing urban-like area. Uh, but also, and this is a point that I, I, I focused my, my presentation at the Space Summit on, which was um, what you get or you know what you're paying uh, a condo in downtown Toronto costing three quarters of a million dollars uh, in terms of space and, and view and what you have act you know what you can see and do in your own home uh, or even in your surroundings is fairly limited. Obviously, you're in a you're in a city. There's lots to do in the city, socially speaking. Lots of access to uh, all the things that a city brings. For the same price in in say rural uh, Nova Scotia on the you know the eastern shore, let's say, uh, the same price. I, I pulled up some examples of uh, you know five thousand square foot mansions with a kilometer and a half of uh, waterfront, 10 acres of land. Um, and you, you're about the same amount of time and distance from an international airport in nearby towns. And, and they, they all have, you know, let's say, uh, superstore, grocery stores and Walmarts and things like that that aren't too far away. Um, as long as it's not too remote, it's not that different. So once you get the connectivity there, and let's say you can even run your business out of, you got 5,000 square feet. There's lots of room to put in a home office. Uh, there's lots you can do there. So the question of are we going to see sort of de-urbanization, uh, economically, I would think we would see the shift that you could. You could do remote learning. You can, uh, you know, the, the uh, virtual office uh, that uh, the Gig economy, as they're calling, you know, casual work, contracted work, anything digital. If if, if you're doing um, uh, digital media, for example, a lot of companies uh, producing digital media, they're spread around the world. Go, if you're doing movies or commercials or something like that, it gets shipped off uh, middle of nowhere. You might not even know where it's going to. There's no reason you can't do that in, in, in your own home in, in like I say, like Eastern Passage, Nova Scotia, or something like that. Um, so these things start to be able to be done. So, but the question really comes down to the urbanization versus de-urbanization. Is it totally economic, 
or do people want to congregate in the cities for more, let's say, more social reasons, for interactions with other people and, and things like that? I don't know the answer. I just can see that the pressure to go to the city for business and jobs and things like that should over time diminish. That pressure will be reduced at least at a minimum. Yeah, and I think that's that's the point that I'm that I'm trying to to to, to get at, which is, you know, with this new communication capability, I mean, it's 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 clear over the last, many decades now that people have been, and not even just the the few decades, but over centuries, that people have always congregated uh, to the to the big cities, and our big cities yeah. have grown and grown and grown, and and. There are both advantages and disadvantages to being in a big city, uh, as we know, uh, including both, uh, you know, the cost of living in a big city, the opportunities of being in a big city, but then the hassles of commuting within a big city if you have to commute and the rest of it. If we have these new communication um, capabilities where a small town or smaller towns, and let's just say for the, for the sake of it, North Bay, where you can build a business in North Bay and you have a community that's growing in North Bay, you don't have to go from North Bay to Toronto to create a new business because you're connected to the world and a lot of new businesses are done through, as you said, the cloud and you can have video conferencing, teleconferencing. It's it's actually easy to interact with the customers you know, via these new links as opposed to actually, let's drive two and a half hours to go see the customer on the other side of Toronto, you know, Mm. I I see that, um, I think the equation, the equation may slowly change so that, um, I don't, it's certainly not going to, you know, we're still going to see people going to the big cities, but will that diminish a little bit? And will we see more communities grow in more, uh, rural or remote areas? It's an interesting, um, uh, development that we're going to have to uh, obviously track as, as as things go forward. Now, I'm curious, with the companies that you're dealing with, are you seeing more of them located in smaller cities or communities as opposed to large metropolitan areas? Right. So, so I'll have to put a caveat on this. Uh, the area... Uh, the area that I'm allowed to have direct clients, we are geographic in nature in, in, in IRAP. Um, I can only have clients directly in the city of Ottawa, the greater Ottawa area, if you will. Um, so my direct clients will be here, but that's because I'm here and that's where I'm assigned, essentially. Uh, that doesn't mean that's all I interact with. Um, I'm often brought in to uh, help clients in my area of technical knowledge. That's, to go back to the original question about background and, and how IRAP works is we have geographic areas, but as, you know the clients we have might not be in our area of specialty, so we, we draw on each other and bring each other into our clients. So I've been brought into a lot of clients in other, other areas. So even when I talk about going up the valley here to uh, Ottawa Valley to Deep River and in that area, uh, they weren't my clients. They were a colleague's client who covers that area and he didn't have a specialty in these areas of business. This was specifically space-related companies. I've been uh, down in, in rural Nova Scotia 
um, brought into a space company in, uh, maybe I won't say names, but Hackett's Cove, Nova Scotia is a nice little, uh, uh, beautiful little spot right, uh, near, uh, near, um, uh, Chester Basin. And it, and it looks like a nice little rural community. And yet there's a space related company there. Uh, and so I'm seeing these things popping up in at least the areas that I work. Uh, you brought up the, the point of launch earlier. I, you know, I've been working with clients, uh, working in launch systems in Canada. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not something that's really, uh, you know, uh, hasn't taken off yet, uh, pun not intended, of course, because it's not exactly regulated yet that we can launch to orbit from Canada yet. Uh, they're, they're working on it. Um, but we have, I think, six, uh, six clients already that are working in launch systems. And uh, they can't do that from downtown Toronto or Ottawa. Uh, they necessarily must be in remote areas, as we all know, as your your listeners will certainly know, the first, hopefully, first Canadian spaceport will be in Canso, Nova Scotia. Again, on the eastern shore, that's that's rural uh, and quite remote. So it's um, it, you know that sort of thing we see cropping up. I also work in UAVs and other aerospace areas. Things like aerospace manufacturing, of course, happens in the city, but things like uh, UAV flight testing can't happen in the city. The more rural and remote it is, the easier it is to get approvals. So I'm certainly seeing it a lot more. It might be that I'm biased in my areas of specialty that I'm seeing that, uh, but I've also seen it in areas where, to go back to the obvious uh, first layer, uh, the digital companies, when I'm pulled into a digital company doing, let's say, satellite imagery processing or airborne imagery processing or some sort of uh, data processing, those I'm certain to see uh, now and again kind of out in the middle of nowhere. There's no reason for that they should be wasting their money, you know, spending on an office in, in a downtown urban area when they can do it a lot cheaper, uh, even just in a suburb. Um, the connectivity is already there, ground ground connectivity, but it's already there in in smaller towns. I moved to a smaller town, and I'm there right now in in uh, in Ontario. There's there just seems to be less and less reason to be in those moving your your companies into these urban centers where we have always had them. I see them moving outwards certainly a lot more. All right. So my last two questions, quick questions, could be podcasts on their own. <laughs> so we'll, yeah. we'll, so we'll try and keep the uh, uh, short, short answers from you if you can. Um, sure. So far, we've been discussing what Leo satellite communication constellations will mean in the Canadian context. Uh, if we start applying that to the global community, because all these constellations are after global audiences, do you have any thoughts on, on what that will mean? Well, certainly the obvious one is, is uh, the unconnected areas of the world. Um, the the rural area and remote areas that we've been talking about, yes, in Canada, they're all around the world. We certainly see them, um, you know, on the Asian side, in, in, in Africa, in the Middle East. They certainly, there's, there's, there's a lot of area that isn't covered, uh, and as that expands, again, as long as, as long as you can build there, you still need infrastructure for living there on the ground. It's not all about connectivity. Uh, but certainly, 
uh, the more that that happens. There's no reason the same sorts of forces, market forces and, and, and people's needs and social needs and uh, living standards, there's no reason that those forces also can't apply there. Okay. Now, my last question is, will we look back at the time Leo Satellite Communication constellations came online as a pivotal moment in human history? <laughs> a big philosophical question to end with. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, yeah, and a short answer you're looking for, I can tell. Um, I, I, think, I think, yes, it will be an important change in the way that uh, sort of uh, our social structures and our, let's say, our, our um, the way that we organize ourselves, even in business, it's one of many. The internet, of course, being a big one, uh, as we move towards digital technology and information technology, that in general is a big one. To me, this is uh, a, a subcomponent of that trend. It is not necessarily on its own a new thing. It's just a new way of doing it. It will, I think, have a major effect, though. It is not just a minor change. It is a, it is a major um, functional change. Now, that being said... I don't know that we can ever predict what, well, let's take social media, for example. Did anyone predict it was going to make the types of social changes that it has for good and bad? Uh, it's just not something that you can easily, easily predict. So, uh, you know, I'd leave it at that. I think it's important. Will it have a lasting effect that's, that's major? I don't know. Well, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, thank you for taking a stab at that question and some of the other ones. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get you back on, on the podcast uh, in the f near future when uh, there's some more interesting things. You've brought up some more questions for me to ponder, at least. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> That's what I, I certainly like to leave people with a lot more questions than we started with. All right. Well, thank you again for being on the Space Q podcast. Uh, thank you, Mark. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. And hey, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq. Lastly, if you haven't listened to the latest episode of our new podcast, Terranauts, what are you waiting for? Host Ian Christie is a natural interviewer who knows how to tease good stories from those who work every day in space, but don't go to space. Terranauts is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite app. Listen to it now. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.